Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fricoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by director Steven Soderbergh. Since his debut film, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, in 1989, Soderbergh has been one of the leading voices in American cinema. He's made 34 films of varying size, genre, and aesthetic. Some of my personal favorites include Out of Sight, The Limey, Aaron Brockovich, The Informant, Magic Mike. Even on that remarkable short list, I'm excluding his reboot of the Oceans franchise, Traffic, The Girlfriend Experience, The Nick. The list really does go on and on here. As COVID-19 took hold last year, there was a renewed interest in his film, Contagion, set around a collection of CDC workers scrambling to find a cure for a pandemic. The similarities, of course, grew increasingly eerie as 2020 continued to unfurl. But in the midst of the pandemic, Soderbergh, true to form, got back to work, against all odds, at great risk to himself and his crew, they safely, heroically, improbably made this film. Set in 1954 Detroit, No Sudden Moves centers on a group of small-time criminals who are hired to steal what they think is a simple document. When their plan goes horribly wrong, their search for who hired them and for what ultimate purpose, weaves them through all echelons of this changing city. No Sudden Move will be available to stream on HBO Max starting July 1st. Here's a bit from the trailer. We're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except... Is that something you'd say? Normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. Can I go home now? Wait at the house after. What do you mean after? Right off of your feet. What is going on? What's going on, big guy? Yeah, what are we doing? We're following instructions. Are you helping me or are you not helping me? No, 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 no. Soderbergh is often praised for his prolificness. He makes movies efficiently and nimbly. But beyond the sheer quantity, what's most impressive, at least to me, 
is his chameleonic ability to weave in and out of different stories rather effortlessly. Or at least, it appears to require no effort. Naturally, there's no way for us to walk through 30 years of his movies in an hour. But I really love this conversation because we unpack his process, the logistics of making a film in the pandemic, but not just how he makes movies, but why he makes them. The inflection points in his winding journey from sex lies and videotape to now, vibrant as ever, still trying to figure out how to make movies in new and interesting ways. This is Steven Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you've directed 33 or 34 movies. That number could be off. I think it's right. (laughs) On each occasion, you've returned to this line of thinking that I really like. You've said, it's always important for me to have some aspect of the filmmaking process be terrifying, some part that fundamentally scares me. So why don't we start there? What about No Sudden Move terrified you? That it would be confusing and that the the film builds to a climax that's not a traditional climax in the sense that it, it doesn't it doesn't culminate in a shootout and and films like this typically do. We were trying to create, you know, within this intricate plot, a sense of a universe, you know, kind of leaking in from the sides that that also affects the the central core narrative. And so I the thing that scared me the most is A, are people gonna be confused in the wrong way? You want them intrigued. You're you're okay with the fact that people don't understand everything all the time, but it's very easy to lose people. It's very easy to get so far out in front of them that they, they get tired of chasing you. And then at the end, like I said, the, the film sort of lands in what we hope is an unexpected way in terms of you not seeing what's coming. But, but it's kind of, it's a very intimate climax in a way between these two characters. And so my fear is, Will that be satisfying enough for people or, or will they be really disappointed that this doesn't turn into some kind of blast fest in the last five minutes? You're worried about confusing people. Is that a concern you have in your films often? There are other films that are just as intricate or maybe even more intricate. Do you worry about losing people along the way? Yeah, I just think clarity is not something to be dismissed and being obscure is easy. It's too easy for a filmmaker. The hardest thing in the world is to be good and clear. And with the understanding that the trick here is that sometimes in order to be clear, you're, you're, you're sort of being pushed into a territory of becoming obvious, which you don't want to be. But you do want to be clear. So you've got to find these ways to satisfy both, both those demands. But I, I, get, I get very frustrated when I watch a movie where I feel I am not clear on what this is. I don't think the people making it are clear on what this is. And they just are taking this pose of being elliptical. And I, I just want you to tell me a story. You've made a lot of films and in quick succession, but... You're also in your late 50s, and while many of us were sitting at home panicking about the pandemic or watching Columbo on the couch, which is what I was doing, (laughs) you were making a movie, and and I feel like this speaks to a philosophy of yours. You said in Esquire in 2002, it's a bad sign when there are years between your films and there's no substitute for shooting. The biggest benefit is that it roots out preciousness, 
I think preciousness is the enemy of art. And this philosophy that you seem to hold dear, even in a global pandemic, is, I have to say, impressive. Well, I appreciate that. It was a very weird set of circumstances in that a pandemic was, or the idea of a pandemic was obviously something that I was familiar with. And then I had the opportunity to become involved in the um, industry protocols that allowed us to go back to work. So it was a it was a really weird uh, uh, call to action that that um, was really generated by the fact that you know a decade earlier we'd made this film. You're talking about Contagion now. Yeah, and and I certainly hoped that not only would we we be able to get people back to work safely, but that potentially whatever structures we put in place were exportable to other industries, um, whether it be another business or schools or, you know, we, we spent a lot of time working with the absolute A-team of epidemiologists to develop these protocols, and they've worked. It was, yeah, as everybody knows, a weird year, but for me, um, not completely uh, without a certain kind of, you know, engagement that I, I think a lot of people didn't have the luxury uh, to experience during lockdown. It does make sense, though, given your career, that even in a pandemic, you are still kind of going at it. Did your family kind of expect that of you? Well, I try not to ask my family a lot of questions because I'm afraid <laughs> what the answers will be. Just as a general rule. Yeah. I don't want anybody telling me anything true, that's for sure. But I don't think anybody was surprised, um, anybody close to me, that there was just no universe in which I was going to sit around. Like the, 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 I, I, that was just not an option. And I like to watch things. Um, as as we know, because I I publish this list every year, but this was a truly ex- new experience. And so my initial solve was to do something I haven't done in a long time and that I don't really enjoy doing typically, and that is writing. I, I just sat down and started writing, and that carried me through the the, the initial wave of COVID right up until the shooting of so No Sudden Move in the fall. I wonder, with the crew, is there a certain sense of camaraderie that, hey, we're, we're making this film happen? Because I, I directed a short on election day in Vegas with about eight people. And, you know, our DP just had a kid and we all were all we were all coming together under these kind of insane circumstances. And I think it did bind us yeah no without question when we finally the the feeling of finally getting back on set in detroit when we started up again was incredibly powerful the fact that the movie got shut down in march and there was there was a question whether it would come back i think for the people of detroit there was a real worry that we wouldn't come back, that even if the movie got reconstituted, that the expense of going back to Detroit again um, would prevent us from doing so. So that I think you're right. I think being there on that first day, we were just so happy. Like we were just so happy and felt so lucky. Um, and it really, it really sustained through the shoot in in the sense that not only was there a, a real esprit de corps, but as evidenced by the fact that we were able to do it safely without any problems, without having any positive cases, shut the production down. What that means is that people really bought into the the idea of of staying safe while we're shooting, because I only have these people for 10 or 11 hours a day. Then they leave me and go somewhere else. And this is where potentially you're going to have an issue. They're going to bring it to work. So the fact that that didn't happen meant everybody understood we've really got to band together here and take these protocols safely, even when we're not 
on set. I'm just so happy that people were willing to make that commitment. You do make this film, and I want to stick with that line, preciousness is the enemy of art. And and I wondered, have you ever felt that you've conflated preciousness with patience? Has, has your aversion to preciousness ever shuffled you off a project prematurely? No, but I think I have a pretty good internal algorithm for identifying a, a trajectory that is not going to make me happy. You know, I can, I can look at something at, at whatever stage. It could be an idea. It could be a script. It could be a script that's already got cast and has financing. Like, oh, I, I think over time, my ability to look at something and know whether or not I should do it and whether it would benefit from me doing it or if it's going to make me crazy or, or sad. And I follow that and I listen to that. I'm still very much focused on continuing to optimize the process so that it's as aerodynamic as it can be. I mean, there are benefits to that, you know, that are economic and that are very clear, but it's more, I just hate waste. I don't mind exploration. And the first thing, if I'm on a set and I feel like something is not working, I don't believe essentially what I'm looking at, or I'm not sure how to shoot it. The first thing I do is I slow everything down. I send everybody away and I sit in the space and I'm trying to turn the clock off so that I can go into a pure creative space. Because it's my belief that the, the thing talks to you. The thing that you're making talks to you. And I need to, when I feel like it's pushing, it's resisting me. Something is pushing back. Something's not right. And when that happens, I send everybody away. I, I sit down in the space and start to like unpack it and like take it back to like, try and ask myself this list of questions. Why is this scene not working? Sometimes you come up with the solve in a few minutes. Uh, there was one case where the, the sequence itself was so large and my frustration or inability uh, to figure it out so significant, I sent everybody home because I didn't want to sit there and waste everybody's time when I just said, I don't have this. Like, I don't have this at all. And I figured it out that night. And then by noon the next day, we had done two days of work. But it's when my desire to work fast is strictly is the result, I hope, of stripping away everything that doesn't matter. There's something incredibly honest and vulnerable about being able to do what you just said you did. To say, I'm, I'm sitting in a room, I've cleared everyone out, I'm trying to locate the answer, I'm not finding it. Instead of shooting something I know is not right yet, go home. That's something I think many people, as I'm sure you know, would have a hard time doing. This happened on, this was one of the Ocean's films that this happened on. So the good news is that I have the, unlike a lot of people, I have the support to be able to do that, A, because it's incredibly rare. Like that's, that's the only time, I've sent people away. That's the only time I literally sent everybody home. And so knowing that everybody involved understood, oh shit, okay. He really, like, he really, and they appreciate it in the sense that they know it means I want it to be right. Like I want it to, I'm not going to sit here in front with you guys when I don't believe what I'm doing. And like I said, it turned out by the next day, we were right back on track. Cause when you know what the idea is that you're trying to execute, it does go quickly. It's certainly an admission of, you know, if not failure, of being human. You don't hit bullseyes day after day. Like it's just, it's a fluid thing. It may seem strange, you know, when you hear stories of like how quickly we've executed something, but that is absolutely with me working from a place that this is how it's going to be forever. You better, you better like what you're getting because this is what people are going to see 
it's got your name on it and they're going to see it like this for the forever so don't walk away until you feel you can defend it we'll be right back after a quick break Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go to a human moment in your life because watching Don Cheadle in the back seat of a car in your latest movie... I'm immediately transported back to the driving scenes of Out of Sight. And I know this was your first time returning to Detroit since shooting that film in 1997. When you made Out of Sight, you said, I had to chase that project. And making that movie was the most pressure I've ever felt. I got up every morning with a knot in my stomach because I thought, if I blow this, I'm fucked. I'm so, so... Fucked. <laughs> that was a good delivery. 
from you, that means a lot. Well, I, you know, I'm just calling it like I see it. We would have, we would have walked away and moved on to the next thing. You know, the trick there, and that, that is true. I mean, I wasn't being dramatic in the sense that I was, I was very much aware of the professional stakes involved for me on that project. And the trick was to do a kind of Jedi mind thing where practically speaking, when I showed up on set, I behaved as though we were making Schizopolis and I could do whatever I wanted. And that's, that's what I was able to do. Again, with the support of some really good producers and a studio that, that believed that I would execute, but it was, it was to feel in that moment when the, the, the thing that you love to do more than anything else is, is hanging in the balance. If you're not careful, it can be debilitating. You've got to really, like I said, find a way to put yourself in a pure creative space and, uh, and turn that, turn that voice off. So like I said, you can listen to what the thing wants to be because the thing wants to be something and you can't hear it. If you're just talking all the time, I see the, I think you, if you talk to people that I work with, especially cast, they would probably say, I was really surprised at how little he talked. Is that because you're doing a lot of the talking internally? No, it's because in, in, for me in that space, that becomes a way to obfuscate things as opposed to clarify or illuminate. And so it's not like I won't talk to people, but especially when I'm dealing with an actor, the last thing I want is to get them into some sort of intellectual headspace that's, that's driven by a conversation. I want to keep it, I want to keep it physical. So I think you would, if you saw a transcript of, of, my interaction with an actor over the course of a day, it's all physical, practical things. It's not conceptual at all. I believe if you get the physicality of it right, that everything else flows from that. So it's all very, it's, and that includes talking about breathing, um, talking about the cadence of how they're speaking, but it's, but it's physicalized. I drifted, uh, what, I, what I was responding to was, was a, a drifting away from a kind of film that made me want to make movies. I mean, by the time The Underneath was happening, I felt I was becoming a formalist. Like, I, I, I really wondered where the kind of engagement and energy that I began with went, you know. And, and it sounds terrible to say something about a movie that people work so hard on, but the, the underneath represented for me the sort of, if not the, the nadir, it was something that I could look at objectively and wonder what the hell I was thinking. Like what kind of, who, what filmmaker made this? Like where, how did I get here? Because this doesn't feel like what I should be doing or what I can do. As you're well aware, if you're fortunate enough to to have a first film that that seems to quote work for people, the industry generally is going to encourage you to to repeat that success in as many particulars as possible. Obviously, that wasn't something I was interested in, and the choices, at least the next two choices, Kafka and King of the Hill, are sending messages to let people know, if you think I'm going to make sex lies over and over again, that's just not going to happen. And I was exploring. I mean, I was learning. I, I look back, you know, I have this, there's a new version of Kafka that'll be coming out later this year. And in preparing that, it was fun for me to look at it 30 plus years, like 30 years later now, and, and, and kind of laugh at what I was thinking I was up to, like to go from to go from sex lies to that, regardless of what you think the, the result was. I mean, that is talk about being a contrarian. I'm happy that 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 I was that willing to to really just run in another direction. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the younger version of myself did that and recognized that ultimately whether 
there were going to be some bumps, that was the way to go. Where do you think that willingness came from? Being inspired by other artists' careers. You know, my favorite artists always were pushing. You look at somebody like Miles Davis, he was just incapable of doing the thing that he'd done already. And so that to me always felt, that just felt like the more exciting way to go. I'm reminded of Mike Nichols now, who I know was a mentor of yours. Mike did two things in The Graduate that were seismic. And usually people are lucky if if they do one thing. The casting of Dustin Hoffman in the lead role was not only a masterstroke, but literally changed the, the industry overnight in terms of its ideas of who a movie star could be. I mean, that was, that was just massive. And the other was his use of music. Nobody in this country had entirely scored a film with essentially what we would call source music to that point. You know, he, he absolutely was an influence in the sense of like, man, those are bold, those are bold choices. And he would, he'd be the first to tell you that the success of the film, you know, caught everybody by surprise that he, he didn't know if like those choices were going to end up being uh, accepted or not. You bring up Dustin Hoffman and I'm immediately reminded of you in this period I wanted to go to in the autumn of 1976. Your family had just relocated to Baton Rouge, I believe. You're 13 years old and grounded, forbidden to attend a party where I think you had hoped to make new friends in this new town that you're in, but you're not allowed to go. Instead, you convince your family to go to a movie. <laughs> it sounds like the kind of story a filmmaker would, would invent to show both the a level of personal obsession, but also in this case, the degree to which my family, even at that age, understood that they were witnessing an obsession uh, that even by the standards of a family that could be obsessive was growing rapidly. And so it was enabled by the fact that my father loved movies. My father published regularly about movies and, and he gave me the movie bug and all the president's men was something that I'd been waiting for for months I'd read about it. I knew it was coming. Uh, part of the reason I was grounded uh, was because of some some very, very ugly grades that I was getting in science class because I was reading the Woodward Bernstein book in preparation uh, for this movie to show up. So for my father to, you know, parole me for an evening so that I could see this film, I just had, there was no, uh, I, I think my, my father being, being a good father and a good parent recognized that I didn't, not being able to go to that party was something that I was uh, going to be able to, to assim, assimilate uh, without too much of a problem, but not being able to see all the president's men was really causing me a lot of pain. So they, they, they let me go. They drove me out there. Uh, my dad drove me out to the theater and dropped me off and came back and picked me up. And I'm really glad he did. I've been thinking about your career and, and in turn your father a lot, which I know is a strange thing for a stranger to say on a, on a Zoom call here, basically. But in the aftermath of Out of Sight, you go on this run that I think you're still on, in my opinion. But before this streak of movies... I know he passes away in February of 1998. Out of Sight comes out in the summer of 98. And a couple years after he died, you had this quote I wanted to read. Does religion exist as a way of dealing with the idea that maybe this is it? Certainly all the evidence in front of us suggests that this is it. That when you die, that's it. My father died very suddenly of a hemorrhage, fast. What was sort of shocking about it was on the one hand, it's the most devastating, profound thing you may ever experience. On the other hand, it is the most common, everyday event that you can imagine. 
and the world rolls over so fucking fast that you can't believe it. It's like a tidal wave. I mean, life doesn't blink. Nothing has changed except you. And so the weird combination of profundity and banality is, I find it really difficult to reconcile. And in his passing, you've had basically an uninterrupted stream of work. And it made me wonder, is making movies your way of reconciling the profundity and banality of your time here? We're, we're certainly a, a, a species that's wired for narrative. And I love being a part of the storytelling continuum that we're all a part of. It's a real pleasure and a real privilege to be um, working in a space that is built on, you know, the emotional connections or disconnections between people. When I start thinking of a movie, I see faces. I don't see like shots. I see faces with a certain feeling, a certain expression to, to live inside of that and to have your work be about exploring and excavating how we interact with each other. Um, and particularly, you know, I think underneath a lot of things that I've done is the question of why aren't we doing this better? When we talk about profundity and banality, it's the, the other dichotomy to get into is the beautiful things that, that we're able to do and the unspeakably ugly and horrible things that we're able to do sometimes right next to each other in, in very quick sequence. And, and what we choose to see and what we choose not to see as we navigate the world. Patterns that we look for that confirm um, some belief that we've developed or swallowed. And then things that blind spots that we have uh, that we're okay with because to see that thing that we don't want to see will upset us or throw us uh, into a state of, you know, disequilibrium. Um, so all of the, um, I'm, I'm interested in, in all those issues. And to your point, to get back to where you started, it's a good feeling to know how happy my father would have been to see me continuing to work. I got that, a lot of that approach I got from him. My father was a real workaholic in the sense that every night at the dining room table, after, after dinner was done, he took the table over and then continued to work. And um, if you were at my house, you, you would see that that's what happens with me as well. But he loved his work. That's where I got that sort of sense of purpose was, was from him because he loved what he did. That line, nothing has changed except you, it's really stay with me because in my head, it feels like a worldview for you. As we sort of navigate the new iterations of the Me Too movement, the, the toxic boss work environment, all of that to me comes back to this place of treating people well because I believe this is all we have. And the idea of, of purposefully making someone's experience here unpleasant. I mean, look, they're, they're, I've had to fire people. I've had people come to me and deliver something that I've asked them to do and I've had to say, this doesn't work. Like it's not, it's, you know, this job brings with it certain very, very tough conversations. There's a way to do that respectfully without diminishing somebody. But I really think, you know, my attitude again, which I got from my father who was an educator about how to treat people is, is partially driven by this belief that, I, I want my time and any time you're spending with me here to, to be as positive as possible because you're, you've, you're, there's already so many things like the death of a parent or a loved one that are going to completely 
destroy you. Those are already there. So why would you want to like double down on on things that are that are destructive? I just don't understand it. I think that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, it is. I, th- I think life is about three things basically: managing of expectations, repeat business, meaning your, your interactions with people should be such that they look forward to interacting with you again, and error correction, meaning it's cool to make mistakes, don't keep making the same mistake over and over. Th- those are the three things I try and you know, use as a prism uh, as I stumble my way forward. And you have stumbled your way forward, I think rather gracefully, I might add. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that. Well, I, I've only known you for 47 minutes, so we'll give it time. We haven't seen you walk. No, I haven't. No, I was, I was trying to think. No, I haven't. I know. <laughs> but in that long tradition of storytelling, as we leave, you know, you grew up idolizing that period in American cinema between 1966 and 1977-78, which is where all the President's Men resides. Of that decade... You said, looking back on the era, what I think we can now acknowledge is that it's not just enough to tear down a system. You have to have a system ready-made to replace it and that has a real shot at making it work. There were a lot of people deservedly saying, we hate this fucking system and it has to change. And when people were able to successfully dismantle some things, there was nothing there to take its place. A sort of ennui began to set in and then economic forces began to see an opening and gradually began to bring things back to where they were. Then you get the 1980s. And as the world reopens, do you see a roadmap to avoiding the 1980s as you've described them? I think there is a way to avoid that, if only because the, the, the business now is, is just not as monolithic as it was during the 80s. And that's exciting and scary. For, for companies and for the filmmakers. It is gonna be interesting as people return to the theaters to learn if their uh, interests and tastes have changed um, after being home for, for a year and a half, or if we're gonna jump right back into, you know, a very similar sort of profile that we had before, which is, you know, kind of fantasy spectacle on one side and, and you know, awards bait on the other. I think, though, that in general, whenever I think, oh, things are kind of trending this way, and certainly cinema is, is in the midst of an existential crisis. Movies don't matter the way they used to matter. They just don't occupy the same kind of cultural real estate that they used to occupy, I would argue, pre-9-11. And that, that was part of what we confronted when we were working on the Oscars, is just how do you make movies relevant? Like, it, 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 this, they've, just, they've just kind of been overtaken uh, by other forms. Um, but whenever I get into that kind of spiraling mood, I remind myself, somebody somewhere that you and I haven't heard of yet is making something amazing that we're going to see this year, next year, two years from now. Some artist is going to blow us away. That may not solve the problems of the industry, but, but it will excite us and surprise us and make us want to keep going to the movies. And what about you? Because... Just as recent as 2017, you have this moment where you're in your Tribeca office and you've taken every film book that you have read up until that point and you have torn the pages out of these long-standing iconic film texts and put them into a collage, basically saying, that's it. I don't need them anymore. What does that mean for you? I wanted to repurpose those books into something that I would never have thrown them away or given them away. But I also, frankly, 
you know, the, the number of them that I would re- go back to again and again was pretty small, and I didn't destroy those. So I, I had a lot of books, and I really just I wanted to retain something of them while also kind of, you know, downsizing a little bit. So creating this, you know, giant collage seemed to be uh, a good solve. But I was very aware while I was ripping apart the Michelle Simant book on Stanley Kubrick, that if somebody saw me doing this, they would really be angry. You felt like you were a little bit insane in that moment, right? Ripping these pages up? It definitely required a a compartmentalization that didn't get any easier. Like it took a long time to exacto knife, you know, all these images out of these books. And so it was a real, I had to emotionally displace myself. That's true. My last question before we go, in 2009 for Esquire, you said, I'm always looking for something that will destroy the thing I just did. You should be willing to throw it away or annihilate it. I'll destroy my career if it's the last thing I do. I'm 45 now, and when I turn 51, that will be 25 years. And that's a lot of time to do one thing. And it will be like 30 movies. And that's enough. I don't want to have that fall off. I want to go out with Abbey Road. Now that you're 58... 34 films in and still making. Do you still want to go out with Abbey Road? Or has what you want changed? If you get a group of directors together for any length of time, the the fear of decline um, comes up almost immediately, especially if there's booze involved. It's just every artist's nightmare that the, the general line on you is, wow, there was a real fall off at the end. Like it's just, that gives filmmakers the night sweats. And the problem is, how do you know? It's not as simple as, you know, reading reviews or or whether or not enough eyeballs saw it. It's, it's bigger than that. It's more profound than that. And so, <laughs> you know, other than telling one of your close director friends Hey, man, when I go out to get the newspaper, like, just take me out. Just take me out. Um, I don't want to I don't want to have people say he kind of he kind of lost it at the end. So I don't feel like that now. I don't I still I think if you watch No Sudden Move, my engagement is is all over that film. I mean, it's clear I'm still very excited about my job. Your fear is basically being you at age 12, playing baseball, having a 7-0 pitching record, throwing no-hitters, a 450 batting average mid-season 1975. You thought you were going to be in the majors. And then one day that summer, you were not good anymore. Yeah. Well, what it, what it was was the spark, the, the X factor that makes you believe in yourself had disappeared overnight. Like it had disappeared. Like I woke up one morning and I knew it when I woke up, like, Oh, I I don't have that thing. That thing went somewhere in the night and, and it's not coming back. So yeah, I mean, at least in that case, I felt it. Like I knew what was happening. The fear here is you're wandering around in your pajamas and you know, nobody will tell you. Look, if you need someone to tell you, call me up. But here's, do it this way so it's not too painful, is just stop agreeing to talk to me. <laughs> I'll know. When, when, that, when word comes back, yeah, Sam said he's okay this time. I'll know. Oh, shit. Until you lose that spark, I would be honored to do this with you. And I have a feeling um, it's going to continue for a long time. Okay. Keep asking. I'll keep saying yes. Steven Soderbergh, thank you very much. Thanks, Sam.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Sarah Sidlinger at Warner Brothers, Kyle Fattaconi, and the team at Junket Productions. I'd also like to thank the one and only Steven Soderbergh. His new film, No Sudden Move, is available to stream on HBO Max starting July 1st. If you'd like to learn more about him and his work, visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. If you're new to the show and would like to hear past conversations with other filmmakers, I'd recommend our talks with Errol Morris, Werner Herzog, Sean Baker, Janixa Bravo, and many, many more. You can find all of those on our website or wherever you do your podcasting, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Caitlin Dryden. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara, Eve Gershon, and Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Callie Syringas, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.